To the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagama Lark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are here tonight to talk to you about part three of Machiavelli. But first, we want to talk about this event that just transpired here in Stygia this past weekend. The Snowball event. One of our proud traditions is coming here in Stygia. Yeah, this is our uh, fourth time that we've had Snowball. We... we think. We were not able to get a hold of Ameldir who started this. Wanted to give a shout out to Ameldir because she's amazing to confirm that though. Yeah, and, and this is going to be our first time actually using a format. I, in my typical type A fashion, have done up official questionnaires for event, unit, and the other thing, realm, realm. <laughs> reporting, uh, just to be able to make sure that we're getting consistent information. So uh, the Battle for the Ring report that we did previously will not have sounded as complete. We didn't have this together by then to send to Anna. That's when we realized we needed it. That Yeah, that was about the time that we did realize that we needed it because I realized that civilians are not good at gathering uh, military intelligence. And it's not any, it's not a slam against you civilians. I'm not, I'm not saying that you are supposed to be trained in things that you are unwise in, but uh, details that would seem important for a scouting report just are often overlooked. So Mm -hmm. it it, it made our picture that we wanted to paint somewhat incomplete, not a slam against anybody who did the reporting for us. They were all amazing. This will just make it so that we get a bit more consistent across the board. Yeah, it's a little more concise. This was technically put on by the Shire of Erebor, which is Stygia's cover. At it's the our university. it's our university group. Yeah. Uh, in th- that way, we can get university funding and a I mean, very small like a, a few group weapons. And a space to fight in during the winter. Which is huge, because we live in Montana, so winter varies between six and eight months every year. There was three inches of snow last night. Like, that's not a ton, but it does make it real difficult to fight when that happens in a couple-hour period. And you don't want to. I mean, I, I reckon back to there was one time when we were living at the door house when we went out and we were sparring, and it had just dropped below 50 degrees, and we had convinced ourselves that it was still good. Oh, and we'll be fine. I caught the flat of a blue just right on my wrist and sprained the bejesus out of it. Like I was in a, ended up being that little splint thing for considerably longer than I was supposed to be because I kept thinking that I was better before I was and, and re-injuring myself. Uh, that winter, there were five of us living in the house and four of us sprained our wrists. Yeah. We were very bored. I mean, we had. I think we had Skyrim. We had Skyrim we on had the Xbox. We had Skyrim and <laughs> Bellegarth and we were in our early 20s. So we're like, well, time to go hit someone. Yep. Now I now I, I spend a lot more time playing Skyrim in the winter, but it is nice. I, that, again, it's one of the huge things. We, we uh, I think Ameldir was the first person to really, really make the Shire of Erebor a thing. Yeah, Ameldir and Mooring and Beatrice did a little bit of it back in the day, but it was mostly those two. Of uh, Erebor has its own government. It's basically Stygia in the off season. So like I run Stygia right now. I do. I have nothing to do with Erebor. Right. But it's largely the same group of people. Right. So it's totes not Stygia for legal reasons. But uh, it's it's very similar membership. Therefore, we're going to have very similar ways of doing things, very similar Yeah, we're uh, still Stygians. We're yeah. just at the Shire of Erebor that day. 
So that's the, the differentiation. But like we had said previously, this was the fourth snowball, we're pretty sure, because Stygians keep great records. We, Ooh, we keep no <laughs> records. You know how I know this? Because I've not been keeping records. It, it took place here in Missoula, Montana, uh, in the UC Ballroom, which is the University Center Ballroom. It's a nice space. There's like it, It's on the third floor of mm-hmm. our... The University Center's like a little mini mall in the university. It's got like food courts and the university bookstore and a, few, and a bank. So study rooms. Yeah. Big ballroom area where like prom happens a lot and we just get like half of that ballroom and there's like open window, not open windows, but windows on the side. So we're getting the light in and we're getting a good view of the town. Mm -hmm. It's just a really nice place to hang out. And this year especially because it started snowing cats and dogs for uh, the majority of the event. And so we have this really cool backdrop of this dramatic snow scene uh, for our fighting. And we didn't actually have to be in the snow. We were in this very nice, comfortable heated <laughs> zone <laughs> while well, we got these really cool pictures out of it. And, and in this place, we managed to get uh, somewhere between 20 and 25 people overall. Uh, at a given time, there were between 10 and 15 people on the field. So it was not a gigantic event by any means. It um, turns out people don't want to drive to Montana in February. In the middle of the winter? Really? For a day event. They don't want to come over several passes that are often closed it's and crazy, I know. I, I'm just baffled. <laughs> so yeah, it's... It, I think it was all Stygians. But it's, yeah. it's basically an excuse to get together. It's it's a fancy practice with snacks, and it's awesome. And music. Um, and music this time around, yeah. Uh, yours truly brought a speaker, and I played some K-pop. And then after I got done playing the K-pop, we did some electro swing. So Electro swing is amazing to fight, too. Everybody was just grooving the entire day. Like, you, like before anything was called, everybody was like standing there in their lines, and it was just bobbing back and forth. You can't see me, but I'm just sitting here bobbing and back it, and it's forth. It's got a right nice now. energy. You feel the flow with it, but it's still, like, pretty like positive and it's not overwhelming so you just have that that nice feel as you go along i am not usually a big fan of fighting with music playing but i really enjoyed that well it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing thumbs do up do up do up do up Some uh, notable figures who were in attendance would be Sir Roku and Sir Tethian, also Master Anish. But again, in Stygia, I, I, we don't mean to toot our own horns, but basically everybody is a prestigious figure because we're so small and everybody trains so hard. There's not many of us who attend events who aren't well known at this point because, again, there's not many of us. It's mm-hmm. not hard to know all of Stygia. Toto was there. He was. Toto used to be really prevalent at events and hasn't gone to events in a couple of years, but people will still ask me about him. If you are uh, an aficionado in the uh, fighter game scene, like Street Fighter and that sort of thing, you will absolutely know uh, Toto. He's huge that. uh, He's back to, to foam fighting right now, which is Excellent. It we are, works great for us. But for a while there, he had transitioned his skills over to, to Street Fighter and was just tearing it up there. Still does. But yeah, so Toto was with us as well. Again, we, it was sponsored by Stygia slash the, the Shire. And then for the history of it a little bit, I'm going to cue thumbs. Uh, it really was just, we wanted the Shire, I, I say we, I wasn't involved in this. They wanted the Shire to have its own things, just to really help justify it to the university. And one of those was an event set up a day event in the middle of winter because winters get really long in Montana. And boring. And by February, we are all crawling out of our skin. 
Mm-hmm. So it was, especially for those of us that don't like ski or snowboard or snowshoe or do all the winter activities. So it was an excuse for us to get together with our friends, remind each other why we liked each other so much. What I found noteworthy was the number of people there that I could say I love you to without it being weird. Word. Yeah, like, it was, like you were just saying it to family. Yeah. Like I've known Divot since I was 15. I haven't known Tadala nearly as long, but people that I've, all of these people I'm extremely fond of and it's so nice to to get together with all your friends and remember why you love to do this the community is a huge part of it Mm -hmm. and and that's a huge part of what machiavelli stresses in this in this book and that that it's it's awesome to be able to focus on it i think because the community it is bellagarth it is dagger here it is amp guard it is warhammer if you don't have people to play your game with you don't have a game I'm a highly introverted person, but I realized pretty early on that if I didn't have anybody who wanted to play with me, it got real boring real fast because I know what move I'm going to do next. And There's only so long you can pell. Yeah, shadow boxing, it, it, it's only so exciting. And then, you know, you, you've outthought yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're playing your next round of Street Fighter. Wait a second. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, it was a good way, like yeah. you were saying, to, to, to shake off the, the winter blues and to get together and celebrate our community together, which is sweet. So the tournament winners for this one, that, that's the only awards that we had. Uh, my apprentice, Kaji, nearly had a hat trick, uh, which is to say he nearly won all three tournaments, but Toto uh, won the champions tournament. Kaji won the single blue and the sword and board tournament. So big, they both performed very admirably, both tournaments were very clean from what I saw. I did stay, step out for a couple of vape break, smoke break type thing, but... I didn't um, arrive until after these were done. I had to work for the first half, but I, I heard they were very good. Everything I heard were they were they were clean and, and well fought. I know that I, I was in all three of them, and all of my fights for them were really fun. I definitely felt how out of shape I am. My opponents also performed extremely well, so uh, it was fun. It was yeah, good. great. Our officials for this one were Toddlin, who was our event coordinator, and she did... I think that this her first event. This is the first time she's run something herself. Like, yeah. I, I just handed this to her and went, go. Yeah, I, and I, I, she I had never it. thought that. She she seemed to have a mastery of the situation that belied that it no longer had novelty for her. So she, she handled herself quite well. And then Maureen, I, I understand, helped out really well with that as well. Yeah, and, she oh. was, uh, she helped to make all of, they made these gorgeous little event tokens that, that were way more complicated than I ever go with in event tokens. And I know that was Maureen and Toddlin. Oh, they were really cool though. They were really, I still have mine in my pocket. You can't see it on this podcast, but I have it. And then our, uh, the face that we saw most was Anya, who was our, our head herald, and she kept us on track, on point, and fighting well. She heralded the whole day. She did. She needed to make sure she didn't fight because her knee's been twe- a little tweaked. So oh. she put on the yellow and put a belt on over the yellow so she would never take it off <laughs> and just ran the whole day staying busy, which is a great way to heal Like for yeah. people. If you ever want to be there, but you shouldn't be fighting, put on yellow. Don't let yourself take the yellow off and you will keep that sense of responsibility going absolutely and it still keeps you involved too you get to you yes. get to be on the field you get to still be near the action you can still smell the blood no that, my, my mood is so much better if i'm on the field heralding as opposed to like sitting on the side of the field like sad well if i'm sitting on the side of the field i'm usually sitting there perched like a turkey vulture just like glaring at the field and like <laughs> reveal to me your secrets running math brain on everything yeah everybody else thinks i'm giving them the stink eye and i'm like this is math eye this is my math I'm doing brain math and I I suck at brain math so I look mad. (laughs) 
So the, the the culture of this event, as you can probably tell by if you if you've ever met a Stygian, if you've ever ended up in Stygia camp, if you've ever spent time in Stygia, if Stygia camp's ever made its way to you, we yeah, do we, tend to do a roving. We do invade. It's a very cheerful invasion, but the invasion does happen. We're like we don't know people, stick together. Hello. But it was very super chill. It's very super chill little day event. Uh, no real no classes or or night activity obviously because we packed up and yeah we and only had six whatever. hours but it's a, it's a super chill little hangout we enjoyed ourselves um and and if you have a, a realm that is isolated or has a, a season that makes it difficult to practice this sort of thing it really helps it, it, is, it is a really good way to keep the realm together like we've been talking about make sure that people are are staying in decent practice and not just going completely cold over the winter and it's just it's a good community building exercise it's a uh, realm pride yeah it is something that i I worked really hard on as a realm leader is making sure that we have a sense of realm pride. That not not just oh I fight at Stygia, but we are Stygians and that is awesome. Stygia. And it has helped the mood of the realm because we're all like, yeah, we are it, it's patriotism, huh? but for wacky bats. Yeah. I mean, it's like fake patriotism, but it's real because, like, you still you have pride in your realm. You know, it's we're also aware that it's wacky bats, right? It, yeah, yeah. We're dressed in silly clothes, and <laughs> not that that's a bad thing. We we love our silly clothes. And so the plans, the plans for the future of this event is to keep having it. It's it, there's nothing really complicated with it. There's not a whole lot of expansion. We're not expecting a whole lot of people to make the trek to Montana for a day event, but for Stygians, it is a really nice tradition, and and we really appreciate those at the university who make it possible for us. We've got another one of these coming up in April, uh, Zootown Throwdown, our seasonal opener, which is the same thing except outside. Uh, It's our first official outdoor practice, and again, we don't really expect other people to come, but we love our excuse to see each other. We do. do. We'll be talking about it. And to treat it like an occasion. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like I, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of nowhere, Montana, as in White Pine, Montana. You could have gone outside and if you took away all the trees, you could have gone in a 360 degree circle and shot a firearm and you would not have hit a living human being with that firearm because we were so isolated where we were at. And that, and that was everybody there. Well, uh, and then you moved to East Missoula, which isn't exactly big on its own scale. But uh, the the nice thing about White Pine is that the whole town was your community. And like, I, I, all of us went to one of three churches. I think there was a, a Methodist church, which is where my family went. There was a Catholic church, which I didn't know about. And then I believe we had an Amish church there as well. But uh, at the Methodist church, again, everybody hung out with each other outside of church on occasion, but church was just kind of an excuse to get together and wear slightly nicer clothes mm-hmm. and, and bring some nice food to have as a potluck was kind of the idea and 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 these snowball events these or these little day events that you can have as a realm kind of feel like that yeah you guys see each other fairly frequently yeah it's not necessarily a a special occasion to see one another but by just making it into a special occasion it really adds some brightness and some pride to the community well and we'll get people that we don't get as often divot who only is able to make it sometimes because he has two kids lives a busy life Mm -hmm. he came his wife came and meg magpie hasn't been active in belagarth for years but she's still got to come and have fun and yeah it was so nice so it is it, it gives people who maybe won't go to a normal practice for whatever reason an excuse to make the effort. Mm-hmm. And and then you also get people who perhaps, like you said, can't make that normal effort toward practice because of the busyness of their lives, will come out for something special like this, uh, who, who maybe have just moved into town. Serge uh, is, is one, of, uh, one of my previous unit mates 
from southern Utah, and he's moved up here to go to school, and school... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, he lives here now. Was he at Snowball? Yeah, he was at Snowball. He must have left by the time I... I I think he left because he had to go back and watch his kids, no doubt. Good Um, guy, Serge. Good job. Yeah, you know, being a good dad. But uh, he's normally so busy with school that he can't make a Sunday practice, but because this event occurred on a Saturday... He, he was, was able, able to, come, to come. Oh heck, I'd love it if maybe we'll and or reach out to him. Reach out to him. He's, he's going to be in town. He's going to school here. He lives here now. Great. But so so again, these little day events, you, they're a really nice thing. Fresh spice of potpourri in the winter for us, but like uh, for anybody, it's it's a little realm builder. Yeah. Anything else on, nah, on Snowball? That's it. That's. I want to give a shout out to Yui. Yui is our chief editor here under uh, Earworm, and they have been doing a really good job. The episodes you've been hearing since the transition have all been edited by Yui. They they stepped in, and have, I was I was trying to learn this editing process, but I, as I was just discussing, that's why this was relevant, I grew up in White Pine, Montana. Most of you don't even know where Montana is, let alone... I where... don't know where White Pine is, and I've lived here for over <laughs> a quarter it's, of a century. It's tiny. It's, it's so small that it's outside of Thompson Falls. Oh, wow. Yes. So yeah, you've been in the area. <laughs> That's where I grew up in that area. And so electronics and I... You I met lo- later in life. I love electronics. I think they are amazing. They add ease to our life. They make it easier to be a human being and to be an effective human being and to, to reach people. And to, I mean, the, the whole reason this podcast is possible is through the miracle of electricity and technology. So I can appreciate it. But I have an easier time reading Machiavelli than I do figuring out a new computer program. And so uh, Yui has so kindly stepped in and, and, and decided to help us out and keep me from from seizing up in dummy brain and we are eternally grateful they're doing an amazing job so thank you so much yui it's wonderful to have you on board yeah looking forward to continuing working with you short intro today well i mean not so short of an intro because we were talking about the battle report stuff but in terms of notes a sparse (laughs) intro of course we have a lot of complicated stuff to talk about today i feel like we do we do it's going to be a pretty hefty it was a pretty hefty chapter to sip through so um i hope you all managed to make it through and if you didn't we are here to uh, deliver the little nuggets of gold that we got out through it. So before we get into the meats and potatoes, I want to leave you the intro with this quote real quick. And this is a quote from one of the Imperial Guard books that I read. I cannot remember which one. It might actually be from that Imperial Infantryman's Handbook that I have sitting there. But this quote is, Infantry wins fights, tanks win battles, and artillery wins wars. So one of the central themes that Machiavelli continues to explore throughout the course of this book is the importance of mixed units, and that is going to continue into today's themes in the episodes for this chapter. In this first part, we're going to be talking about in the line, or what it takes to be a good line fighter, the ideas that Machiavelli lines out for being effective at, at that kind of really tight line fighting. And Thumbs wants us to add a, uh, a disclaimer at this point. We are not from a line fighting realm on the side of the country that isn't as into line fighting. I, I did an internship in Dur de Marion, which they do a, a bit more line fighting in that part of the country. And I have been to events like Oktoberfest, where line fighting is a bit more the norm. I can perform decently in that well. 
and I think Thumbs doesn't do himself enough credit. I, no, I can definitely uh, line fight, but it's not my natural state of being. I have to like stop and think about it. So this, so when we were talking about Sun Tzu, remember we were saying that Sun Tzu and and, and the, the Chinese philosophy and approach to military science is far more maneuver based. Mostly, I, I would imagine that that influence from the Mongols only amplified that later on. Yeah, and I mean even before the Mongols, they'd been fighting Asian horse nomads for a while, thousands of years. Parthians, so they were Scythians, yeah. Huns. Yeah, maneuver is far more the focus in the military science that comes from the older classics of that part of the world. These linear tactics are different, and again, while Thumbs and I absolutely understand the theory here, we are far more naturally attuned to the maneuver-based warfare. Mm -hmm. So Really, it's if you're someone who comes from a like line-fighting, hard scrum place, and you're like, this is terrible advice they're giving. <laughs> I kind of wanted to give you background from where we were from, but also at the same time, if we are, message us. Talk it's, to us. Give us theories. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would love fan interaction. The, the, the differences are, of course, uh, white scars versus iron hands for the, the people who that reference is not wasted on. White scars are the biker Mongols, right? Yep, the, the, the space Mongols. Space I am reading a book about them right now, Scars. It's it's one of the Horus Heresy books about uh, their decision to go with Horus or to go with the Emperor. Uh, it's really, really good. I, I have yet to be disappointed with a book in the Horus Heresy series from the Black Library, but this book is really, I'm reading it more often than I normally read. I come from a motorcycle family, and the Mongols are one of my favorite cultures of ancient history. Well, dude, you would love the White Scars, and you would lo honestly love the Dark Angels, too, because the Dark Angels have an entire company dedicated to bikers. Yeah. They're pretty sweet. I can I, see that. I gotta get you into 40k, man. I gotta get you into 40k. I have so many hobbies. And you have room for one more, especially since your buddy is going to be supplying all the army. All you gotta learn is the rules. Isn't that easy? Anyways, Machiavelli. <laughs> Machiavelli. <laughs> so, in the line here, this idea of mixed units. And again, Machiavelli has, has redefined this concept a couple of different times. Mixed units means having veterans mixed in with your new people, but it also means having poles and spears mixed in with one another as well, not having super pure different melee units. I still find it so interesting that he is so obsessed with this while being so obsessed with the Romans at the same time. Because as we yeah. talked about before, the Romans were pretty much heavy infantry. Maybe well, borrow some people. I think he was obsessed with the Romans as a template. Mm -hmm. You know, he said he said this this idea works really well. In, in particular, the idea of the legion and how it was organized works really well. Whereas, of course, the, the advancement of technology and the advancement of military science would mean that equipping an army exactly like the Roman legion... No, oh, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't have worked in Machiavelli's time, and he knew that. But he was looking at the, the building block. Oh, yeah. I just, I found it an entertaining dichotomy. And, and the Romans did use semi-mixed units like they had a pure unit of legionnaires but then they'd also have they also had skirmishers and they did also have cav again not intermixed in the same way this way is but in the same way this was an und undeveloped idea of what would be later perfected by napoleon when we were talking about his like the grand armee <laughs> and how it was organized and, and how each of its building blocks was a self-contained unit of its own it had, they had their own artillery had their own infantry had their own baggage train this is a more simple version of that same idea and it's remarkably effective. It is. It is. I mean, Western linear tactics work. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm not saying that Western Belagarth is easier or, or better than Eastern or that Eastern is better than Western. They're all just different ideas, mm -hmm. which is why we're reading all the books. The interesting thing that Machiavelli is saying in this section, though, is that you should start with your artillery forward. Now, in Belagarth, we can translate this into your archers being started forward. In Warhammer 40k, of course, the idea of starting with your 
artillery forward is kind of a it's kind of a strange thought honestly because they're vulnerable there the whole point of having your tanks is to put them in the back and to keep them out of the way but if if we go with Machiavelli's thought on this we might convince one or two of you to try this tactic out I know that my next game uh, which is on Wednesday uh, that this isn't a spoiler because it's going to come out like two weeks after we record yeah. it so it's my not like next game which is in my future in your past <laughs> I'm a time traveler. Um, I'm, I'm planning on trying this out. I'm going to forward deploy my plague burst crawlers and then have the rest of the army kind of come up in between them, which is what Machiavelli yeah, goes the, for Yeah, on here. the brief time that I played, I had the Ludas in the back with the boys charging forward. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to think of the Ludas up ahead because if you put them up ahead like that, they can fire first round almost guaranteed. True. And so I, I, I will, we'll get back to you. Next week, I will let you know how this, this idea of deploying artillery forward worked uh, against whatever Juniper brings. It's either going to be Harlequin or it's going to be Necrons. Those are I two. I think she got some new Necrons, so I think you're going to probably. That's a good go point. She that. did just get new Tomb Blades, so I'm going to be going up against Tomb Blades. Yeah. <laughs> this is a high risk, high reward. I mean, I don't know in 40k, but like we'll putting putting your more exposed troops up front so they can hit earlier, it's high risk, high reward. But if you think about it, it's it's with armies that use archery, mm-hmm. it's not that uncommon. The Persians did it. Yep. Uh, the English did it with their longbowmen. This, this opening volley before you send in your main troops, it's not that revolutionary of an idea. With artillery, it is a little bit because they're so slow moving. With an archer, you can easily get out of the way. You, you can just pick up your kit and... And run the other direction and you're out of harm's way but with artillery you have this big set piece that weighs a ton or more and you're trying to turn it around and either maneuver it with the rest of the army or scoot it back out of the way but either way it's just gigantic piece that you're trying to maneuver yeah so it's it's an it's another thing to think about and so this might have actually been a revolutionary idea at machiavelli's time because it seems so counterintuitive with where you would put the artillery but as he explains through this i think you might you might might agree with his assessment. So the idea of, of fighting in the line begins with a tight front line so that when you are moving in to engage your front line and this is after the artillery has gotten back out of the way but your front line is moving in and you're almost basically shoulder to shoulder and and this part isn't that hard to conceptualize most people do this naturally they move the closest to the people around them it promotes a sense of safety and it, it feels more secure and it is where we start to run into problems where at least where i've seen we, us run into problems in foam fighting is behind that because uh, most of the times in the press everybody gets up into the press. And I mean pole arms and shieldmen alike are all up there really, really close to one another. And this presents the problem of if you get injured in the front line, you really have nowhere to fall back to. There's just a hole in that line now. Because you're being, well, you're, you're just injured. So you're being pressed forward and you're less effective. Then once you die, there's a hole in that line because and, and even if somebody moves up to get into that place, eventually you're going to run out of people to move up into that space is the problem. And so what Machiavelli says here, and it's again a expansion on the Roman idea here, is you start staggering after that. So behind the front line, so front line shoulder shoulder. Behind that, you leave the space for a soldier between each soldier. And then behind that, it thins out even more. Behind that, it thins out even more. The idea is, if you get injured, you can just fall back. And someone else can jump up. And somebody else can jump up. And then if enough people get injured and the unit quote-unquote breaks, there's a whole new unit that's been formed behind it of injured people who are still more useful than it would have been if they had just been continually pressed forward into the enemy mass. Um, I kind of do this a lot at events. You and I both learned at the uh, at the feet of Daddy Vallas here, who very much taught the, like, hang out a little bit in the back and see where the weak part of the line is and jump in there. And that actually ties directly 
directly into Machiavelli's next point, which is the idea of depth. And this is something else that we are by and large lacking in, in the idea of foam sports. And also what I see a lot in 40K too, is the idea of depth and reserves, keeping something behind in order to reinforce where a weakness might occur. Now, there are certain armies where this doesn't necessarily work, and there are certain fields, field sizes, yeah. where you're just not going to have the numbers that you need to have a really dedicated reserves, but or you can space. always have depth to your line, because depth allows you to be flexible. Depth allows you to respond to threats, and depth allows you to really put your power where it's needed and when it's needed. Now, this depth comes in two different ways. As we've said, we've already mentioned this idea of having reserves, which is is keeping people back behind the main line of fighting in order to join in at some later time or to move to a side or to a flank as an opening occurs. But on the other side of that, you have the idea of skirmishers. And these are your people who are going out in front of the rest of the army and they are picking the fight, uh, for lack of a better term. They're going out and they're fixing the enemy in set positions so that the bulk of your army can maneuver on them. Mm-hmm. And this is something that people are generally yelled at for doing. Like, I, I you, people will run out in front of the army and you'll hear somebody yell, don't run ahead. And I mean, if they're just running out there to get killed, no. I mean, that's useless. If you're just running out there and you're dying before anything useful happens, you're not a skirmisher, you're fodder. But if you're a a skilled person who can move up and fix the enemy in one place, distract them long enough for the rest of your forces to maneuver in, then you're a skirmisher and you're doing a good job. Out West, we'll see Paksha and Katabas in particular are like the two best at this We'll watch at an event, and Paksha will just veer off, and like a few people will start to follow, and you hear someone go, "No, let Paksha do his thing," <laughs> because he can just hold off. He's he. Everyone knows he's good enough that he can just hold off whoever he wants, even if he can't win that fight. They can't ignore him, and that's skirmish stuff right there. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. Again, when we use the term skirmisher, that's not to say somebody who is poorly trained or a bad fighter. I know in in these armies of the ancients, when when Machiavelli talks about it, and when the Romans generally talk about it, their skirmishers are their poorly trained tribesmen or auxiliaries that are coming in and filling a gap. Yeah, sort of sacrifice troops a lot. A lot, yeah. A lot of the times a sacrifice troop. For us, skirmishers can be some of our most, most useful people. Are the people, again, who can get out there and control the battlefield before the battle begins. It's just a really good idea to remember, and it's something that we don't see very much in foam fighting, because everybody's so eager to get in there. Everybody's so eager to lend their sword or to lend their effort to the fight that it, again, can can stretch that line thin and suddenly you don't have a way to respond to an enemy penetration along the line at any point or, or the need to redeploy it can be very sluggish if you don't have reserves or skirmishers in place to give you that buffer on either side. But just as important as the depth of the line is the way that you constitute it. And Machiavelli recommends that in an infantry unit, now he has the cavalry and the archers or artillery in his words separated out. But in your normal infantry unit, there's a mix of pole arms and sword and board. I mean, infantrymen, Shulman, yeah. <laughs> I keep using sword and board and bell terms. But. Yeah. So the the ratio that he talks about is a two to three ratio, which is to say two pole arms for every three shieldmen. And I I actually really like this in, this ratio in Belagarth. It tends to actually be a little lower. I notice it tends to be a lot closer in a lot of places to like four shieldmen, one spear. Yeah. Although that's been kicking up more lately, and I actually prefer the slightly closer to even if not one one ratio, but like two to three is pretty solid. I think it's changing as our like especially here in the West. 
fast as our field sizes are increasing and as just the, the military knowledge of each of the units is increasing, that that knowledge of how to use pull arms effectively and properly mm-hmm. is is really bringing an edge to the side to the to the teams that know how to use them in that way. When I went out east, this is old hat. I mean, they've been doing like their their mixed units are gorgeous. They've got their their support working with their primary in like harmonious tandem, and they've been doing it for generations. You know, like it, it's it's cool to it's see. Easy to do that when your generation is about two years long. Exactly, um, and and also when you've been around for considerably longer. Most Western realms aren't even preteens yet. Yeah, I mean Stygia, Stygia, yeah, Stygia just graduated high school. But uh, and so that that maturity and that development of tactics that can occur in a place where it is there longer is kind of cool to see. Yeah, um, it was cool to see when I was out there. But this this uh, ratio again, I, I generally find it effective, and it allows you to to maximize on the reach of the poles while not being too vulnerable. Again, if this if this ratio is even inverted slightly the other direction, you start looking more like a phalanx and you start losing the flexibility of what this mixed unit tactic is supposed to bring you. It is extremely high risk, high reward to have more pulls. Like the more pulls you have, the riskier it is, the better chance. Not the better chance, but when it goes well. It goes well. It goes really well. And when it goes poorly. It goes really, really <laughs> bad, guys. It goes really bad. Uh, case in point, uh, we were just talking about Snowball, and we thought that this this example really kind of exemplified what we're talking about here. Thumbs and Grizz and, and Wug. Wug and Orn. There uh, were four of us with spears. Found themselves on the same team with pole arms. My team, by the way, I was on the other team against all this pole arm madness, did not have pole arms. Part of the fun with this, too, is we had pole arms of different lengths. Yes. Because Wug and I just got two 10-foot Bacchus spears, and I, I just want to name drop it just because I love that spear so much. Bacchus makes such good stuff. They are pretty, and they and they move very well. But yeah, so you guys had the 10-foot spears, and then... And then we had, like, a red and a sword and border, and you guys had like all sword and board basically and a red or two yeah it, it was so they were short they were small reds they were min reds and we were like this is gonna go terribly but um the very first battle we lined up and gave them the tactical advantage which seems silly in hindsight but it made for a good story because we met them head on and what does Machiavelli say you should never do against a phalanx if you're not rocking a phalanx of your own? Meet them head on. So we got massacred, as one might assume. When you have that many spears, the moment one mistake happens, the whole thing just falls apart. Because there's just so many shots coming at you. Yes, yes. It's a machine gun of shots, but your one error is getting stabbed off the field. <laughs> but then in other rounds, you didn't let us have that. In fact, even in the second round, I found myself quoting Machiavelli because uh, we, we lined up. It looked like we were about to do the same thing, and I hollered at my team, I, and I said, I'm reading Machiavelli right now, and he, I think he's pretty clear on the subject of fighting a phalanx head on. Hit them on the sides. And so immediately we peeled off, their formation fell apart, and for the next several rounds, it was more our-sided until the pole arms got mixed up as to Yeah, what. I think we did three rounds of the heavy pole arms. Mm-hmm. First one went really well, second one went really badly, third one didn't was... go well, but it was a little more balanced. We were a little more prepped for you to split. And then we were like, alright, this was fun, but it's time to it's time to have that mixed style that Machiavelli talks so highly of. Because it's just more balanced. Like, like you're saying, it allows you to compensate for a tactical redeployment. Uh, as we demonstrated, like I said, that second round, we we did not hit them in the front. In fact, we just peeled off to either side. A half of them went to one side, half of them went to the other side, and it was... Uh, we caught them in the middle. We caught them in the middle, and the spears couldn't respond, and it was an excellent thing 
for us. And then, like you said, after that, the spears got traded around. Some people traded out for different weapon styles, and the phalanx was then broken. But Goodbye, phalanx. That first round, when we just kind of dumbly walked into the points of your spears, oh, <laughs> I'm sure it was. And and this is this uh, this idea of the chess dilemma, or the, like the fallacy of linear tactics, which is to say that linear tactics work great if your opponent is also thinking in linear tactics. As we've seen when East meets West, especially when like the Romans were meeting with, like, with the Parthians and, and that sort of region, this asymmetrical warfare, this this lack of a, a stable front or of, of constant mobility. Anytime someone's tried to invade Russia. Not good. It's, it has not gone well. The, the, the one the one invasion of Russia that went well was the Sino-Russo conflict. Yeah. Japan. But, Japan but, has been the only people to get into a successful land battle with Russia. But the same idea of... Uh, if they don't let you just march in the two army smash, then it's not going to work. Right, and, and that uh, yeah, that's the fallacy of the linear tactics. And so uh, there's there's always be careful of segmenting your thoughts too overly, or, or or coming to a battle plan that is too specific as to where the motions are going to be. Don't be rigid. Don't be rigid in your thinking. It, it, it leads to it leads to problems, and it leads to being outmaneuvered in this way. And, uh, and the same idea of being outmaneuvered, Machiavelli stresses, and I can't stress enough, and it's kind of in this idea of the reserves we were talking about earlier, the importance of a rear guard. Somebody whose job it is specifically to sit back and make sure that no Nobody is coming back and getting into the line and doing things that they're not supposed to do or the things that are going to be disruptive to your plan. At T-Wald a couple years ago, we did Stygia Corner is what we dubbed it. Stygia Corner. And really what it was is we just, it started with Turkey and I, and then when they saw what we were doing, the other Stygians kind of rotated over to where we were, and all of us hit one corner really hard with the goal that one or two of us would get through and get behind. Napoleon would be so proud of you. And any time we did, there was literally one time where Turkey and I just calmly walked down the back, just like milling our shots and just I got more kills my kill death ratio will never be as good as that one fight was because we got behind them and they didn't have any depth they didn't have any rear guard it's really hard to respond to an enemy who's who's on your back flank especially you, if there's someone ahead of you still too like you, you were just talking giving the example of the battle battle of Gettysburg little round top Chamberlain had his forces go into a 90 degree angle there on the the far flank in order to keep exactly that thing from occurring as the rebels were coming up the hill and yeah they kept hitting a little farther side a little farther Mm -hmm. side and he's eventually like okay they're they're gonna flank us (laughs) so let's just counteract that now you be prepared to like move and it worked yeah oh yeah battle yeah it it was one of the actions that absolutely turned that battle for the union between his actions up there on round top on that flank and the actions of custer actually on the other flank it went in the union's favor when it very easily could not have but this rear guard is not just useful there but it's useful everywhere because again it keeps uh, those stray opponents who who want to get into your back line from being as effective as they want to be at either killing archers killing your your main battle tanks in something like 40k going after characters having things in your your rear line is bad so having some sort of protection back there whether it's a bubble wrap unit or some of your your soldiers who have who have decided to remain back or on a further flank in order to keep it secure it's not a waste of bodies now if nobody comes that direction and they stay there the entire time and don't come up and join the main action then yes it's then a, that becomes, a waste of bodies. becomes a waste of bodies but if somebody starts back there it's not a bad thing and a natural inclination is to put your 
newer people in the rear guard position. But remember, what Thumbs was just saying, if you know Turkey Feathers, you know that he's not a new guy. He's one of our veterans, and so when he breaks into your rear line, you want somebody like a Pockshaw or a Catabus who's there to counteract him. And it comes from a place of kindness, I think, putting those new people in the back, or intended kindness. Sure, you're trying to spare them the, the wrath They're of the like, front lines. Well, I'm about to get punched, and I know I can hold right here. You hide behind us and just do whatever will be useful. Just if you see an opening, go for it. Not that they know how to be useful. Yeah, they don't it's, know it's what not, they're not looking not a, for necessarily. Not trying or, to insult anybody, but they just don't know how to be useful without being told at that point for the most part. Yeah, we have a guy, Veldareth. He's been here, I don't know, maybe a month now. Maybe two months. If I tell him, just to hang out behind and jump in when you see a place to be useful, he'll try, but he doesn't know. Just he doesn't have the time yet. Sure, sure. He's learning, but give it a year. Uh, yeah, it, it takes a minute to, to learn that this timing element. And timing's important for everything. The timing of this artillery thing, for instance, that Machiavelli talks about. Again, when we were sitting here being like, it doesn't make sense to start with your slow-moving artillery out in front. It does if they're only firing once. Then, then the timing is that they fire and suddenly your your side elements, your flanking elements are moving up to engage, your skirmishers are moving out, and then your main force is maneuvering as well. So that first shot, that timing, in this particular case, is about disrupting your opponent's formation and then moving on them real quick. Uh, and I think this could actually work in something like 40k or in something like Belagarth. You don't see it very often in Belagarth because a lot of times people like to back deploy archers. It's the preferred place for them. It's, it, they like being there too a lot because feel it's safe. safe. Yeah, but this idea of perhaps having them more forward deployed like the English or the Persians did it might not be without merit. I might try to convince the archers at the next practice to, to step up with me and, and uh, unlo- unleash a few volleys before retiring. Can't hurt. Could be cool. Oh, good, but it hopefully won't hurt. <laughs> hopefully won't hurt and won't hurt for long if it does. Yeah, that's um, what we mean by can't hurt. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to try my plague burst crawlers being forward deployed this next time around just to just to see. And, and But any formation that you're thinking about, any, any, any time, like what, what I'm thinking about right now as to where I'm going to deploy specific things. Any of these ideas always have to be tempered and scaled in a different fashion when you take into account the site in which the battle is taking place and the kind and numbers of your enemy. For instance, if I'm going against an enemy who I know is going to be on their back line the entire time with my death guard, I know I want to forward deploy. I know that I want to make sure that my dudes are as close to theirs as possible because I'm going to have a long slog to get to them. Now, if I'm going against orcs or tyrannies, or some more melee-oriented Eldar, I might not necessarily back-deploy, but be a little bit further back from my line in order to give myself some more play. The, uh, the longer it takes the melee person to hit you, the more time you have. And you want to be the person to initiate melee. Mm-hmm. In just about every case, in, in, in foam fighting as well, any sort of any combat, any sort of wargaming, you want to make sure that you're the one who calls the shots as to when that combat takes place. One of the earliest things I teach fighters is will be fighting for a few rounds and they won't be able to hit me because they're standing just a step too far back right but i have pretty long reach so i'm able to hit them and i eventually like hold your weapon out and i go put my arm next to theirs and line the weapon up and you can see that i have three inches more range than they do kind of a tall guy and i'm like okay so that is three inches that i can hit you before you can hit me right and if i can control you at that three inches you've lost the, the battle is mine yeah the downside of being tall is you also have a bunch more target area yep on your person this is this is the uh, I've talked 
about Dyer before on this show. I'm going to talk about her again because when she came to our realm, she made me really second guess on whether or not being tall was actually an advantage. <laughs> if, if you close in on me, I have nothing. Well, especially at that time, I was I was using all of my height. I was standing up very tall when I fought. And so when she got in really close to me, by the time I was able to drop my weight or even think about changing my stance in order to deal with it, she'd already cut my knees off. This is why it's good to meet new fighters. Very good. Or I'm sure meet new Warhammer 40k fight players. I try uh, to play any as many people as I can. The more people you fight, the more people you learn against. And the, and the more people who can show you something. Just because you read a book and had an idea doesn't mean that you had the best idea or that you had got the best concept out of that book. The best thing you can do for your learning experience is share what you've learned with others, listen to their experience on the same subjects, and, and find out where you might have, have missed something or where you could fill some holes with their knowledge. And since this is a game where you don't actually die, make mistakes. Make mistakes. Make and, as many. Learn from them. Well, this sounds like a really bad idea, and then tear up the field. Like, it, it can go really good. High risk, high reward isn't a bad thing when you get up again five seconds later. No, and you're learning quickly, and, and it'll, it'll help you see things like what we're talking about here, like uh, how the formation should take into account the sight and kind and numbers of enemy. That's not something you're necessarily going to know the first time you see ground, but the more you fight, the more that you go to events, the more tournaments you go to, the more you participate in your particular brand of wargaming, the more you're going to have seen it before. You're going to think, oh, I remember I saw this in a fight about a year ago. This is what I did. It didn't work well, so I'm not going to do that again. I remember thinking that this might work well, so I'm going to try that. Even just that is, is a huge step in the right direction because that means you're not making the same mistakes over and over and over again expecting different results. Einstein didn't say nothing about it, but that's still crazy. I'm just saying. That's yeah. the most misquoted things in the world. <laughs> Drives Tink up the wall. So before we change this uh, from from this this theme of in the line to the the next focus that Machiavelli had in this chapter, which is artillery and archery, he says artillery, but I say that we can apply this to archery and bell, or absolutely to artillery in 40k. But it's it's the levels of training that are kind of like the levels of mastery in line fighting, and the first one is being able to recognize heraldry, which is to say who's your enemy, who's your friend, who's in charge. That's heraldry, yeah. In a nutshell, who's important? Who do you need to worry about? Some of the, a lot of that stuff can be determined by heraldry. I'm not saying you need to sit down and memorize the heraldry of every knight, artificer, and war master in in Belagarth or every. But figure out a way to know your team. Yeah, figure out a way to know your team. Make sure uh, you know your team. A thing that would happen at and the baddies. A thing that would happen at Chaos Wars for a long time was one side would be declared a cake and one side would be declared pie. Yeah, and you would just hear people going around going pie, 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 and you're like, well. <laughs> Don't don't hit those people. They're also of the pie. I hear pie. But yeah, something like that. Even, even. actually, that's that's even more advanced. We're going to talk about that in, in stage four. Oh, I'm getting um, ahead of myself. It's it's of the similar mindset. The next part of this is moving with order when you're on the march, which is to say when you're moving across the field as a group, making sure that you maintain your discipline, maintain where you are in the formation, so that it's not confusing and, and there's not chaos. That one's pretty understandable, but it, it, it can be hard to get people to move at the same pace. Somebody might be moving a bit aggressively for anybody else in the line, so they might get a bit far ahead, and somebody else is dragging behind. And so making sure that everybody's moving in the same direction with the same idea actually feeds into the next one. He gives this, this whole litany, this whole order in which things are to be done, but that's bear in mind that he's ordering this based on the exact military science he presents in this book. Seeing as that we're not going to be marching from column to 
align in the exact pivot style that he suggested. I, I, I took some liberty with this section just to say that everybody knows what they're doing. You don't necessarily need to have a verbal battle plan beforehand if everybody has fought with each other so long that they just know what the other people are going to do. If, if that's the case, then you don't need to talk beforehand. But if you're, if you're with strangers, if you're with people who are less familiar with your tactics and your way of doing things, definitely make sure that they know what your train of thought is in terms of the way that the battle is going to progress. Mm-hmm. And then the last part of this, like Thumbs uh, spoiled a little bit earlier, is recognizable commands and calls. Even just pi, which is, is basically flash, thunder, World War II. Uh, these were words that were used by Allied soldiers to d- designate that they weren't German because a German accent was extremely pronounced when saying those words. So that was like the call and response to say, hey, friend, friend. At the studio practice, it's usually roadside and amphitheater because there's a big amphitheater on one side of our field right. and it just makes it really easy. Amphitheater? Oh yeah, I did start there. Okay. Yep. Yep, just just an easy way to distinguish from the enemy, an easy way to distinguish when you're supposed to be going forward, when you're supposed to be going back, when you should be paying attention to what's going on around you, which should be all the time. But like, for instance, here in Stygia, we'll often say like, look to or like so and so to the rear. We'll call out the name of the fighter who's like coming around to flank, and then we'll say that they're to the rear. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just it, it's just becoming like a, a standard a feather call. behind us. Yeah. That happens a lot. If if somebody were to come from another realm that, for instance, said, look at so-and-so, and that was their general way of saying that they were behind them, mm-hmm. if they were to encounter our call and they were to say, you know, look at turkey feathers, we're like, I mean... He is pretty. He is pretty, but I don't understand what the point of that is. Like, again, make sure that you're on the same page. You're speaking the same language. You're using the same lexicon. I don't know how, the, how else to say that but that's what you should be doing. Yeah, and and I and that's what Machiavelli has to say on being in the line. Um, and the next part of this chapter is on artillery. More, more, he wants to talk about how to use it properly and how to defeat it properly. And we're going to be applying those lessons on both sides of that aisle as well. He stresses the point, and I, you know, I agree with this as well, that it is more important to guard against being shot than to focus on shooting. Not to say that you should, shouldn't be putting any lead down range, but just to say that you should be focusing on cover or moving with, with quickness rather than shooting the enemy first off. Yeah. Just trying to get up. One of the most valuable parts of a shield line before you engage is the person that goes, arrow and sticks up their shield yeah. to block it. So they're not just blocking the arrow. They are calling out that this is happening. Yep. So in case they miss or whatever, other people still have that chance to be aware that it is coming in. Especially with our arrows not being very fast. Right. Any awareness is so helpful. And that cover, that overall group cover, can be extremely important to the, the preservation of the unit as a whole as well. The Urukai had a long time practice of making sure to call out arrows and to block every single arrow. It was a drill that they would do to make sure that everybody was trying to block every arrow that they saw. And it meant that their pole arms and that their archers were able to move with more impunity because the shieldmen were not just doing the work of blocking for themselves, but for everybody else in the unit, which is highly effective. Oh, yeah. Especially if everybody's doing it, you've got a very well defended unit at that point. It also works in 40, again, the direct word here cover for 40K. If you're, if you haven't, you don't want to move directly across the open, especially against big guns. If you don't 
have a choice, if you don't have a uh, another way of getting to them, that might be your one option. But you want to always try to advance with cover, or with, if you don't have cover, to get through it as quickly as possible. It is more important to get to the other side of that gap than to worry about pausing and shooting partway through. Yeah. Because then you're just going to get killed in the gap in, in whatever game uh, wargaming thing you do. The, the river less people is die on the lead up, the better. Yeah, well, because you got more numbers hitting the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And you, you might wonder, what's the point? Why would you want to move against the artillery or move against your enemy's archers? Um, I don't know why you would wonder that, because obviously you want to get your, your enemy... Like, anything that can kill you from over there needs to probably die first. Yeah, if... <laughs> If they can hit you when you can't hit them, eventually you will make a mistake and they can afford more mistakes than you can at that point. The math is not in your favor. Not in your favor. So you want to close in. And moving against the artillery or moving against your enemy's archers forces action. And it forces one of two actions. Either they retreat and cease firing, in which case, booyah, you win. Or two, it forces a conflict right there as the rest of the force responds to to defend them. Either way, you have made your opponent make a decision right then, and you have forced an action. You can predict one of those two actions. Either they're going to move out of the way, or they're going to move something to defend them. I have seen occasionally people just sacrifice archers or sacrifice their artillery. I've sacrificed you when I need to sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've sacrificed whole lines when I thought it would accomplish victory. That's not Um, even sometimes. That's just just your tactic. Well, the other times I'm sacrificing the other line to accomplish victory, so... (laughs) I vary it up, thumbs. You got to keep it fresh. So I guess there is that third option, but in most cases, you're not going to have, especially in a real world situation, a commander is not just going to usually let things die. Not if we can help it. Not if you can help it. And so forcing this action, again, makes your opponent do something that's predictable. And if you've prepared for one or both of these eventualities, then you have the upper hand because you know what comes next. So one might ask, when when you're dealing with so much like armor penetration, for instance, from from your big tanks, in 40k, which can just punch through just about anything. Or in War- or in, in uh, Belagarth, when you're dealing with the leather or metal armors that we wear for protection, you know, you get hit with a las cannon in 40k. Armor isn't going to do much against that. Does it's not care. probably going to punch through and kill you. Um, you get hit with an arrow in Belagarth or, or Dagger Hero Ampguard, and in most cases it punctures through your armor and just kills you. So you might ask, as one of the people did in this dialogue in the book, what is the point of using armor then? If it is not going to hold up against artillery or archery, why wear it in the first place? It's just going to weigh you down. I think that the response to this, just like Machiavelli thought, is rather self-explanatory. The whole point of wearing armor is so that when you get into the clutch of melee combat, you can have that just edge more of protection than your opponent does. I'm allowed one mistake. One mistake. That's one mistake more than your opponent, if they're not wearing armor. Yeah, and, and which doesn't the- always matter, but sometimes really... Sure really matters. And in the case of 40k, you know, a lot of the game is based in in melee. So making sure that you're well defended there isn't necessarily a bad thing, even if it costs a few more points to field the units that can hold up in that clutch. Even though it may sacrifice a little bit of mobility, even though it might be heavy, something you have to carry around with you, even that slight bit more of protection is still worth it, according to Machiavelli, and I think according to the cast here at the War of Wargaming, too. Yeah. 
Um, and the last point before we get into this really, really fun battle, like we have a really fun battle for you today. It is um, a huge cluster that also defines an entire conflict. And it's if, if you can guess it off of that, I'm going to be impressed. Stay tuned because it's, it's fantastic. But if you are an archer or if you are somebody who's running an artillery piece, he advises you to keep your distance from your allies in terms of not just lateral movement, but also in terms of your forward and backwards movement as well. Because typically, as an archer or as artillery, you're going to be moving in a different direction than the rest of the army is. On Wednesday, when I go against Juniper, my Plague Burst Crawlers are going to be sitting there in the very front, and my, the rest of my dudes are going to be behind them. Either the Plague Burst Crawlers are going to be moving backwards, or they're going to be sitting still. Either way, everything else I have is moving going to forward. need to be moving forward. So how do you make? How do you have that happen without just presenting a massive confusion and, and, and slowing down the motion of both units' direction? You just make sure that you've got distance. Make sure that... And, and the way that Machiavelli sets it up here is that you've got like a, a unit of infantry, and then right next to them a unit of archers, and then infantry, and then archers. And so you've got this block-like formation. The archers or the artillery are done firing. They can just slide back. Nobody's behind them, not directly behind them. And then the infantry can just slide forward. So you have the same front line that's occupied, but different segments moving back and forth along it. A similar idea might work for 40k as well. You just have to make sure that you're watching your lines of fire is, is the one issue there. And making sure that your bubbles stay intact. Anything more on this uh, particular chapter? I think we've covered it pretty well. This is, as we warned, this is a dense chapter. This was a dense chapter. And... and and like I said, I was make I wanted to make sure that we found some good stuff to apply to our, to our war gaming here. But uh, Machiavelli does not make it easy, <laughs> and I appreciate the challenge. But here coming up, we're going to be talking about the Seven Days Battle from the American Civil War. interesting this battle because i know very little about the civil war but you have been talking to me about the civil war since high school I, I, like I, you I'm love the civil war been fascinated by it. the most bloody conflict in american history it is it, it is insane so many people died so many people injured so many national implications over the actions that were taken on these battlefields yeah i, I found it a, a very fascinating period of history and, and not just for those reasons but also the period of time in which it existed in terms of military science you had the the real transition occurring into what we would consider modern military tactics the technology was way ahead of the tactics you basically had revolutionary war style fighting and that was almost a century before at this point right right and 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 then but the the technology was getting to the point that we would more recognize it as like world war one era technology like most people don't think about the fact that there were absolutely functional ish grenades in service during the american civil war I there was automatic weapons uh, like howitzers yeah you were mortars. showing me that heavy repeating cannon it was a cannon a cannon a repeating cannon uh rockets the first quote-unquote submarines were were deployed here in the, in the form of the ironclads. So the technology, uh, the, the speed at which technology advanced during this war cannot be overstated. Um, Antietam, which I'm sure we're going to cover at some point, being that it's one of my favorite uh, battles in terms of studying, it's one of the first times that rifling was was first seen, for it's instance. only people could aim it mattered. Exactly, because you had these massed shots from smoothbore muskets that were wildly inaccurate that suddenly mattered, that suddenly people who were accurate with a smoothbore musket 
were really accurate with a rifle and and it changed war it changed the way that war was fought not immediately a lot of people had to die before the tactics changed but so so this this conflict was very important not not just in terms of american history but in terms of seeing where global trends in military science were headed yeah the morals of the civil war gets debated a lot but it doesn't usually get debated on the level of kind of the morals of military science sure of not just the grander scope important things that the civil war was talking about but oh my god this is it is such a bloody conflict i i I get distracted reading about the civil war just because i can't stop thinking about that it's hard not to and i mean it's it's hard not to study this period of history without turning some emotion in you because it was so so visceral in so many ways emotionally physically and it was very that that was always demonstrated in the course of these kinds of of battles like the seven days battles which were were very bloody they were a part however of the larger peninsular campaign during the civil war so the year of 1861 is largely kind of spoken of by historians as the phony war. The North and the South were still technically at war. There were some mild military engagements, but for the most part, nothing really I'm happened. Really taken off. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first the, the first year of the Civil War was was very animated, <laughs> but but this the, the the second year just kind of was sluggish. It appeared to be far more sluggish, and it appeared that the commanders were far more timid, and they were. In the South, you had Johnson who was in charge of the the overall army and he was extremely timid in the way that he approached warfare and the commander who had just taken over in the north mcclellan was knee high to a grasshopper basically i mean you're taking somebody who has my age and military experience and putting them in command of the entire as much as i think i know about military science i'm not ready to lead the army of the potomac I'm yeah just you not. said he was a general in his like early 30s yeah he was i mean he was he had a, a really rapid progression he was brilliant by all accounts. He was had graduated from West Point at the time he was 19. He went straight into the wars down with Mexico and served under General Winfield Scott. And so he got a very storied career from the get-go and he became very full of himself from the get-go. He had earned the nickname the Young Napoleon and he loved it. He he wore that one out. <laughs> this is like 50 years after Napoleon too. So people still remember Napoleon. Like we kind of think of him as a just like a figure of history, but he would have still been a, a force in the world memory. Oh sure, and 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 some of the, and a lot of these people, their parents would have remembered Napoleon in the world. So yeah, it was fresh, and so this this nickname was largely applied to him because he was taking credit for his underlings who were performing extremely well in the Western campaigns that he was in charge of. No, that never happens. No, not never. And and so he he got this reputation that he he maybe didn't deserve. But whatever the case may be, he started the Peninsular Campaign in 1862 in March, and what we mean by the peninsular campaign is there's a peninsula near Richmond between two very large rivers and it's occupied by a a revolutionary era fort. This fort isn't really useful for controlling the rivers because the rivers are so wide and the cannons were so inaccurate at this time that they really couldn't be used to control the rebel shipping lanes. It was a great idea but it didn't work. It didn't hold up to what was needed. That being said it would seem to work as a very good staging ground for this peninsula campaign. The whole idea 
idea here was to move on Richmond. Washington wanted a quick, decisive end to this conflict to stamp out the rebellion once and for all. And if you take Richmond, you take the capital. And once that's done, I mean, that's that's like taking the king off the board. Yes, um, that's taking Washington. That's taking Washington, D.C. Right. So this was a big deal. And there was a lot of pressure on McClellan to achieve this. On the other side, you had originally Johnson. Now, Johnson had been serving for a while, but he, he had been very lackluster in this conflict. And if he had continued serving as the South's primary commander, the war probably would not have gone on for very much longer. He just he just did not have the grit to this do it. This campaign could have ended it. Oh yeah, it definitely could have ended it. I mean, that, that was the whole point to McClellan being there, was to, was to end this campaign. So there was a lot of pressure from Davis, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy, to, to defend Richmond from these invaders. So, and Lee becomes a, a name here, but we're going to get into to him in just a second before we, we get through some of the, the other numbers, or the other the other the other facts. McClellan starts moving very slowly uh, because Johnson came to oppose him not with nearly as enough numbers to keep him on this little occupied part of the peninsula that they needed. But McClellan also didn't move as quickly as he needed to, so they just kind of stared at each other. You know, Johnson in some you know decently fortified positions, and McClellan in a well fortified position with an extremely well trained, well equipped army. Oh, that was the other thing I forgot to cover that that year that was spent. McClellan did not spend it idly. To his credit, he trained his force into the best fighting force that this continent had seen up until that time. So he had an amazing army to work with, one that was extremely well drilled, had excellent morale, and was very well equipped. He did not, however, know how to use it in an actual field combat. And so Johnson lines up against him. They stare at each other. Johnson ends up withdrawing after, I don't think they had any meaningful skirmishes. No, they, they kind of poked at each other, but and so and this kind of happened. And, and yeah, they let him. Just let him <laughs> just drop from this position. And so this kind of was the trend all the way up the peninsula as they pushed towards Richmond. And so Davis is getting more and more desperate. Johnson is becoming more and more obstinate. And then fate strikes at Seven Pines. So this was a battle that kind of preceded the Seven Days campaign. And first off, it was a complete mess. Both sides were, were all over the place in terms of tactics and competency. I mean, Johnson had people marching in the wrong directions. It was it was an absolute crapshoot. Well, and the Confederate Army wasn't even a unified army. It was just whatever troops they could pull together from different areas. Right. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't have the the same unity that the North had as like one main fighting force. You had this group from Virginia, this group from Mississippi, this group from South Carolina, all with their own colors, all with their own ways of fighting, all with their own commands. They definitely paid for it here. They definitely paid for it here. So this battle went very poorly, and and but on the thirty first of May. In 1862, there was a shell fragment that changed the history of this war and changed the history of America because this shell fragment struck Johnson, knocking him from his horse, requiring him to be replaced. Now, the natural replacement for him was another general by the name of Smith, who was more experienced at leading men and knew the ground in this particular area. However, Smith had a nervous breakdown, (laughs) (laughs) presumably in the face of this uh, massive responsibility. And so Jefferson Davis then decided to give the job of, of the overall commander of his army to a lesser known general who had served faithfully 
for 30 years, but hadn't really accomplished very much in the time he had been in, had proven himself as a good military advisor, and more importantly, had proven himself diplomatically inclined toward the, bureauc the bureaucracy of Richmond. Because one of the big issues with Johnson was that he picked a fight with everything, and he thought that Davis was out to get him at every single turn. And so there was this mutual distrust between the capital and their general, which meant that there wasn't a whole lot that could be accomplished there, diplomatically speaking. That being said, Jefferson and his aide had already had an extremely good relationship. So when he nominated Robert E. Lee to lead his army, he knew he was doing the right thing. So I don't actually know if this is true. So I'm going to ask you now, is it true that Lincoln asked Lee to lead the Union army before this happened? Or is that just hearsay that I was... I, I have heard that that's rumor and I've heard that it's absolutely true. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe. Okay. Definitely that Lee, he wasn't unknown. He had been he had been serving since 1829 and he had shown great promise and had earned a lot of accolades with the war on Mexico. That being said, in the 30 years that he served, he spent it primarily in the engineers and he didn't actually lead troops in battle until 1859 when he read the raid on Harper's Ferry. So to say that he was inexperienced in leading men is an understatement. Even after he got his own command, after the raid on Harper's Ferry, he proved himself to, be, he seemed very timid. His men thought of him, of him as very timid. They didn't see him with the same bravado as they saw in Jeb Stuart or or the same like strength and power of presence that a Stonewall Jackson had. He, yeah, was just, he doesn't have a cool nickname like Stonewall. Like. No, he was Granny Lee at this point. Old Man Lee at this point. That's what, that, that's what his, or uh, after he had done a, a little term also building up embankments and fortifications down in South Carolina, uh, they named him the Ace of Spades or Spadesley after the, the oh, shovels yeah. that were used to dick. And so again, he didn't he didn't have an amazing reputation coming into this battle, and there weren't a whole lot of of high hopes from his men initially. He very much proved them wrong. His nickname of Granny Lee disappeared after the Seven Days Battles. He was not called the Old Man anymore. He would start being referred to as the Marble Man or as the Gray Fox after this. So that being said, he was definitely new. <laughs> You, you mentioned that he spent a lot of time with like engineers and stuff, yes. and it shows in his battle plan. It oh, is yeah. intricate. Because immediately he builds up the center, and Davis was worried. He's like, "Am I? Did I just put another McClellan, or did I put another Johnson in charge? Um, is this guy going to be super timid?" But Lee assures him. He says, "My plan is to build up the center, make him think that we're here, and then we're going to maneuver elsewhere." And that's exactly what he does. He sticks Magruder in the center, and then he moves to their left. So if you think about these lines set up to the east of Richmond, running north to south, of course the Confederates are going to be closer to Richmond, and the Federals are going to be a little bit further away. So. So Lee goes out on his left, which is to say the federal right, leaving Magruder in the center. And Magruder does an amazing job in the center. He's marching his troops back and forth. They're playing the drums and the trumpets all day. They're lighting extra campfires to convince McClellan that there's oh, more that's people. That's confusing, Magruder and McClellan. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a reason I, they're written down. <laughs> right here. But in order to, to confuse his, his opponent, and McClellan played right into it. McClellan had been paranoid this entire time. From oh the time, God, there's so many people here. From the time he landed in this peninsula, he was reporting back to Washington that the numbers were easily twice what, what was being oh, seen. Oh, there are a good 200,000, and everyone's like, there's like 75,000 guys, dude. His own army intelligence corps was reporting back to him saying, no, no, no there's not. There's We have way more than they do. Why, nope, not why possible. Are you, why are you saying that, Don't sir? Don't you hear those drums? 
If we lose this, it's because I didn't have enough men. McClellan, you, you have so many men. Not having enough men was never a problem that the Union really had. And yet all the Union generals seem to struggle with this timidness. I mean, part armies. of it is probably we were already talking about just the outrageous number of deaths. They're not used to seeing 20,000 people die on a battlefield. Sure, like, that's a lot of people. Like, oh my god, oh, that's, oh, I just lost so many people. Don't, I did, not nearly enough troops. I did bad. No, I mean, that's just the nature of war right now. So yeah, Lee comes into this and he does bumble his way through it a little bit. The nice thing was, so did McClellan. So a lot of the errors on both sides were forgiven by the, the lack of ability on, on both sides. It wasn't for lack of trying. Lee had amazing plans, very intricate, very precise plans that required clockwise precision. If this had happened like 50 to 100 years later when like radio was really a thing, it would have been probably brilliant. If this had happened a year later after Lee had learned how to use his army, yeah. it would have been brilliant. Brilliant. But as is it was right now, him just assuming command and just going with it, there were some definite errors. They started on day one. Lee strikes first at the Beaver Dam Creek, and Jackson was was supposed to be a huge part of this. Jackson was 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 fresh from the Shenandoah campaigns, where he had been giving the Feds a real run for their money. He had licked them in a series of campaigns, that virtually pushed the Feds out of the Shenandoah Valley and secured that front for the South. This is the first time that Stonewall Jackson and Lee work together. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I think they had served. They had served on s the same battlefields before, but like not in a superior, inferior kind of role. Okay. Um, they really work together like this because after this battle, Stonewall is Lee's right hand man. Right. But in this battle, Stonewall Jackson displays an uncharacteristic tardiness. Which is and, why I can't figure out why afterwards they're so close. Well, I think Lee understood. Because again, Stonewall Jackson, as as impressive as he is, is only a man. For instance, Jackson was, was the sort of fellow that would line his troops up ahead of time and then stand there with his watch waiting for the exact minute that he was supposed to move out. He was that precise. And so that's why Lee put him in this place because he thought that he could trust him. But like we said, Jackson was fresh from the Shenandoah campaigns where over the course of three months, he and his men had marched roughly 400 miles, and then they had just beaten feet very quickly to get to this battlefield. They didn't. Yeah, they, they took <laughs> they a just, nap. They just literally, they literally took a nap. When, when Jackson finally showed up to the battlefield in early afternoon, he was supposed to hit in the early morning, by the way, he shows up in the early afternoon to put his boots up and take a nap. You and I both did Montana Conservation Corps. We did. We did jobs where you worked, where you hiked 10 miles in a day carrying a large backpack full of all your things. The last thing I would want to do after that is fight is fight and I know this <laughs> because once Turkey and I were on the same crew and we brought weapons and we used them like once right you just the last thing we wanted to do showed. after 10 hours of hiking and swinging axes or carrying guns setting it, up it cannons it doesn't matter how disciplined you are or or how fervent you believe you believe in your cause I do get sleepy your body's gonna give out eventually and that's that the human cost the, the physical cost of, of war was definitely felt here so the stalling 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 A.P. Hill finally gets tired of it. 3 p.m. he says, you know what? I'm going in. And he goes in. And, and A.P. Hill is my man, by the way. If I had to select my, my favorite general of the Civil War, it would be A.P. Hill. Look into him. Uh, he's very cool. And he, he he did work throughout the course of this entire battle. So he comes in, he hits, and he's basically doing it alone. Every other part of this intricate plan falls apart. Nobody he's moves. Wildly outnumbered to. here. Wildly outnumbered. Gets the absolute pants kicked off of him. And... 
still the enemy withdrawals. I, I, I don't get that. Like the numbers were so, so uneven. We're talking like numbering in like the multiple thousands of casualties for AP Hill and then like a few hundred casualties for the feds. And was, they withdraw from the position. I was skimming the Wikipedia article at this at lunch, just like helping get myself acquainted with it. Mm-hmm. And even the Wikipedia article was like, no one knows why this happened. It was a bad call. <laughs> bad call. And I mean, they were isolated. That's part of the reason they were hit. The, like Lee knew about this flank being somewhat in the open because Jeb Stewart had done a ride around and said the rivers have flooded and their right flank is totally separated from the rest of them. You can totally hit them. So they tried, failed. And then instead of reinforcing them with the rest of his 70,000 men that were sitting in the center being distracted by Magruder, McClellan said, no, we're just going to bring them back. And so he started this whole fallback thing that eventually had him withdrawing from the entire peninsula with a superior army. I'm sorry, I just, the Union generals just vex me <laughs> in this conflict. None of them were good. Even the one that won was just like, well, I can afford to lose more people than you can, so let's do this. Yeah, he understood the strengths, though. I, just, I mean, he understood he was operating with the Imperial Guard. So the next battle took place on the 27th at Gaines Mill, and this was the only place that one could consider, there was an actual victory for Lee, where like, where, when you look at the way that the battle went, it actually ended in a victory for Lee. And once again, Lee hit that left flank, boom, tried to crumple it up. There was a lot of lack of communication again. Stonewall Jackson, tardy, late to the party, doesn't perform. It, 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 I'm, I'm sure Lee was just spitting mad at this point. <laughs> Stonewall, more like. Hey. Oh. Yeah, that was a good one. That's my one good one for the year. You guys heard it. I got it on air. And despite heavy losses on both sides, they do manage to pull out a victory. And once again, McClellan withdraws back to Savage Station. And here he is in a position where Lee actually has a very good chance to isolate one half and completely envelop it and destroy it. And so he sends out his orders. And once again, Stonewall Jackson fails to perform. And Longstreet and A.P. Hill, who both were performing extremely admirably so far in this fight, didn't show up on this particular day. And the reason for it is is kind of funny in hindsight. Anybody from this area of Virginia at the time would be aware of this quirky little local tradition that had renamed a local family. Now their name is spelled E-N-R-O-U-G-H-T-Y, which I assume is Welsh or in some other form of, of bizarre English. It sounds Welsh. It sounds angry like that. They had been renamed, just kind of friendly, a friendly renaming by the community as the Darbies. <laughs> <laughs> which is very different than that spelling. It's a bit of a shift. So Lee, of course, is from Virginia. He knows about the Darbys. And so he tells Longstreet, who has A.P. Hill following him, to turn on the Darbyville Pike Road. And so, of course, this whole time, Longstreet is looking for a street called Darby. Or just called Darby, Darby. because that was the family that, could, that that owned it. So they spent the better part of the day getting lost and wandering around looking for this street while the rest of the army was getting, it was not going well over at the Savage Station. But yet again, there is a withdrawal. And this continues to Glendale, where once again, Again, there is a, a, ma- a massive mangling of orders and intent and casualties on both sides. And, and yet again, McClellan orders withdrawal. This continues and continues and continues until McClellan is finally drawn back into a decently well-fortified position with an open field in front of him. And one of Lee's biggest saving graces throughout this conflict was that he was moving quickly enough that McClellan couldn't bring his prized artillery to bear on him. Because McClellan, his whole plan throughout this was basically to just Cannons. shell his 
his opponent at a distance. Yeah. More cannons. More cannons. And so Lee was taking away that advantage by very quickly moving up and taking these positions before they could really be brought to bear. This was not one of those cases. It appears that Lee got frustrated and orders a full frontal assault. Eventually, there were there was, uh, um, again, a bungling of orders that, that saw one unit going in and basically getting massacred, and then another unit being like, oh, we need to help them out, going in and getting massacred, and then Lee saying, oh, look, there's an opening, and then everybody going in and getting massacred. This was, this was regarded as one of the worst tactical errors that the South made throughout the course of the war. Numerous Southern generals remarked on, on the massacre that took place on this hill. And yet McClellan withdraws. <laughs> Jeez, I just I I just don't get it. Get your stuff together, man. I know you've been dead for over a century now, but so a slight slight tangent. One of the reasons in in Warhammer 40k and in foam fighting that I like objective based games is that it's not always about killing your opponent. N- not always does the the army that lost less people win. For instance, in this particular case, Lee started off with less, lost more, and still won. Yeah, because Lee lost twenty thousand. He lost. 25% of his army. And that's almost 30%. He had 75,000 people total. So yeah, it's so much of the army. The Union lost 17,000. So they lost less people. Which is about 10,000 of their army. If, if you count the force that oh, was okay. occupying Fort Monroe back on the peninsula, it was about 10% of McClellan's force. So 25% of Lee's force, mostly in AP Hill's division because he was doing all the work. And then McClellan loses 10% of his, and yet he still ends up withdrawing. What does this tell us? That Lee was accomplishing the objectives. Even even though he was doing it clumsily, even though he was doing it without the flair and panache that he would gain in later campaigns, he was still moving aggressively, getting the initiative, and accomplishing the objectives. We were saying earlier, try things, make mistakes, see what works. Lee was doing it just in a really horrifying way. If you stop to like think about the cost, well, he was trying to save his co- he was he was trying to save his country. Yeah, from his mind, like any cost, no cost was too high in order to save his country, and his countrymen agreed with him because after this, the faith that the South placed in him could not be shook. Young men signed up by the thousands to be led into combat by Robert E. Lee. Specifically, he became a legend after this. It, it is crazy to think that They somebody, would ask to attack a hill. He is 52 years old at this point. He is 52 years old and has led a relatively unremarkable life. And then he becomes one of the, arguably, the most famous people in American history. Easily the most famous person from the war. Oh, yeah. yeah. Active in the war. I mean, it's him and Lincoln. And Lincoln wasn't a commander. He was, yeah. he was a political figure. Um, an interesting point of trivia, though, there's only been three army commanders in the history of the United States that have been injured or killed in a conflict. All of them happened in the Civil War, and two of them were named Johnston. How does that make you feel, Thumbs? Yeah, a little bit afraid. <laughs> So here we, we see how artillery can be used and how it can't be used, how the, where the drawbacks are and how moving against it very quickly can destabilize a long-range uh, weapons platform. We've also seen how using mixed units and, and utilizing depth and reserves and skirmishers make a huge difference in how the line functions in pitched combat uh, and, and how using a little bit of maneuver and a little bit of linear thinking can help you avoid this chess dilemma of thinking in, in too many straight lines. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think that's it. Yeah, it sounds about right. It's yeah. uh, about where the timing is expected to be. For sure. But yeah, this was a this was a fun one. We're going to be moving on to part four of Machiavelli next time around. But before we go, we got some plugs 
for you. You can always check out our Instagram and some of the pictures that we post on there. Uh, the recent ones that we have on there from Snowball were taken by Orn of Stygia. Uh, thank you, sir, for supplying those to us. You can check us out, Art of Wargaming Podcast. That's our handle on Instagram. Uh, you can always email us at artofwargaming at gmail.com. The Art of Wargaming is our Facebook. That one is the art. It's the only one that has a the in it. You can see thumbs and I there. We got the picture all changed out. It's very nice. Yes, yes, all black and white. Very dramatic. You can also check out the other podcasts on the Earworm Network. Uh, I am on the General Nerdery Podcast, and I actually want to give a shout-out to Fried Squirms, the third podcast on our network, because they are recording just today that we're recording this, their 150th episode. Wow, 150 episodes. Sitting here at, we're at what, like 12? Uh, uh, 17. 17. 17. Oh, I'm at like 8. But either way, <laughs> uh, it's so super cool. Uh, check out the other general nerdery stuff. Check out our stuff. Give us reviews, news. I would love to get fan letter, or even a hate letter, whatever. Tell yeah. me I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, any any comments, uh, critiques, constructive criticisms, we'd love to get them. Uh, if you enjoy what we're doing here, you can help us out by reposting, liking, and subscribing. Until next time, when we catch you up with part four of Machiavelli, this has been Yaga Malark. And thanks. Signing off. <laughs>